irreverent, entertaining, cool. You're listening to LA Talk Radio. Welcome to All Things Therapy. I'm your host, Lisa Tahir. I'm a licensed clinical social worker practicing as an intuitive psychotherapist. I'd love to hear from you as my listener, so please reach out to me through my LA Talk Radio show page on latalkradio.com or go directly to my website, NOLA. Therapy.com. It's the abbreviation for New Orleans Los Angeles Therapy. And it's called that because I divide my time between New Orleans and Los Angeles. I have offices in both locations. Please reach out to me if you'd like to schedule therapy sessions in person. If you live in either city or nearby, I also do remote sessions by phone, Skype, and FaceTime. And as my listener, the first five people that reach out to me to book a session, you can text me, call, or email me, Lisa at NOLA Therapy. You get your first session at half off, 50% off my normal rate. Um, additionally, I'd really love for you to subscribe to this show on iTunes, Google Play. I have a channel on YouTube, NOLA Therapy. You can... Subscribe to my show on iHeartRadio, and it just really helps my ratings and helps me reach more people, and I would be grateful for you to do that. My guest today, who is going to be with us in just moments, is Cindy Michael. And if you're in front of a computer or want, and want to pull up her website, it's Cindy with an I, C-I-N-D-I, Michael, M-I-C-H-A-E-L.com. She has authored five books on business and technology and that reflects her expertise and work as a technology and big data expert today however we are talking about her memoir titled the sportscaster's daughter and this book was named by red book magazine as one of the best books of 2016 we're going to have a conversation about themes around emotional recovery forgiveness faith and strength as this is her personal story about growing up with her father George Michael who was a famous sports newscaster in the Washington DC area welcome Cindy thank you Lisa it's a pleasure to talk to you today it's a pleasure to have you with me today where do you want to start our conversation and dialogue about your memoir about your life about what you want listeners to really know and take away from this book? Yeah, so even if you're not a sports fan, maybe you're a music fan, you might know my father as the top rock and roll disc jockey in America in, in the 1970s out of New York, WABC. His show, The Sports Machine, was also broadcast nationally. And many people have said that it served as the inspiration to ESPN Sports Center. But even if you don't care about any of that, I think the universal themes are about family, family ties, 
the good things and the bad patterns that are so hard to break, but that I think you can by working on it lifelong. Yes. So in your book, one of the things that stands out to me as I'm just reflecting on it is that you and your father didn't speak for a 20 year period, which was his choice, not yours. I know from reading your book that you always had a desire for closeness with him. That was a very push and pull experience from him to you. Can you just talk to us a bit about about that and now being so many years later and and just as you reflect back on that 20 years, what what comes up for you? Yeah, so and I I think some people, I don't want to say many, I hope this is the minority that experience such a, a strong degree of estrangement. Um, Even with our political climate in the U.S., people are writing about, oh, you can't invite so-and-so for Thanksgiving because they're a Democrat, they're a Trump Mm. uh, supporter, what have you. And I do think rifts can happen for a short period of time. Did did I ever imagine it would be 20 years with my father? No way. Because for one thing, he he, he wasn't just my father. He was my sole parent. He fought for and won custody of me, my brother and sister when we were little, and my mother lost custody of us. So he was larger than life as a person and as a parent, and we were very, very close. In fact, I would say parents should never have a favorite, but in some respects, I was his favorite because I was most like him. I was so hardworking, the overachieving perfectionist. And so for roughly half half our lives or my relationship with him, we, we were close. So to lose him was devastating. And there were times that I didn't think I would be able to go on without having him in my life. So estrangement is a very painful thing to go through. Um, yeah, it's not easy. No. And to highlight for our listeners, it was in 1976 that your dad received custody of you and your two siblings. That was not typical. It's not typical even today in our modern culture that that uh, a father would receive custody of of their kids. And some of the things that I remember you sharing in your book that he did well was letting you all know that you would not be alone, even though his show was, I think, 6 to 10 p.m., so he wasn't home. Those after-school hours a lot of the time or at night, that he always had a babysitter, that there were certain lengths that he went to. Can you talk to us about about that time when, because you were young and you had to even meet with a court-appointed psychiatrist who was not sensitive, just the whole mental health system, thank goodness, has changed since then when kids are involved yeah. in court? Yes. So in the 70s, oh, my goodness. Um, so I was 11 year, years old the, the summer going into my sixth grade. My sister was five years younger, so uh, five or six years old. My brother is um, a year older than me. And things were not good at home since my parents separated when I was in third grade. My my mother, um, it, I, she clearly went through a very difficult time after they separated. She was not taking care of us, uh, whether it was staying out, going to parties, bringing people around that she shouldn't bring around. 
leaving us alone at the mall at night after it closed, things like this. Mm-hmm. But there was a final blow up. Uh, we, the chapter in the book, we call it Escape Night. That was very traumatic. Um, a lamp flew across the room, which throwing things for my mother was not unusual at that point in time, but my sister did get hit in the face. And my father had been talking about when he had more money, he would go through a custody battle, but he couldn't afford it at this point in time. But this night, escape night, as we call it, I think was the final straw. And so the next weekend, we went up to visit him, thinking it was just another weekend to visit. It was not his turn to have us. But uh, we went up, he sat us around the kitchen table in the morning and said, do you want to come live with me? It's all three of you or none of you. If you decide you want to come live with me, I'm not going to paint a rosy or false picture. I do work at night, but I will make sure that you always have a babysitter. And he didn't only work at night disc jockeying. He was also doing play-by-play for the Islanders hockey team. So he also traveled a lot. Okay. And he was doing weekend sports casting as well. But we, we agreed it would be better to be with him than to continue with our mother at that point in time. And I know it was so unusual for a father, one with his schedule and a father full stop to apply for sole custody. He was not immediately granted it, not for all three of us. We did have to go to court. We all had to speak to a court psychiatrist. Neighbors had to testify. And and I do look back and I still think what what an awful thing. Like I, I felt bad betraying my mother. Of course. But even researching the book, I, I went back and read just hundreds of pages of court transcripts to see which of my memories from that time were still correct or which were false. <laughs> there were some memories I wish had stayed forgotten, but um, it was a very difficult time. Yes. So I think it's in a situation like this, it's just too much for children, I think, to have to testify like that and, and to be put on the spot to choose a parent. How was that afterwards between your you and your mom, like in years afterwards and, and such? Yeah, it, it was very difficult. And, and as you know, the, the way we talk to children is very different now. We don't ask leading questions. We don't ask um, black and white questions. But yeah, the child psychiatrist at that time would say, why don't you want to live with your mother? Or the judge said to me at one point, well, I don't see any scars on you. It, it, she, she couldn't be throwing things that often. Wow. <laughs> and I just thought, okay, yeah, but it still scares the heck out of me. And I do think, um, I remember coming out of the interview with the child psychologist and, and I couldn't, I couldn't on the spot remember specifics. And I come out and my father says, well, did you tell them the time about this and this? All, all very traumatic things. And I said no. And I just felt like I had let everyone down because I couldn't give specifics. I, I just felt like life was more normal at my father's on the weekend 
even though that's not normal going into a rock and roll studio, than it was with our mother. And yet for a child to articulate that, yeah, I didn't like having to choose. I just, we didn't want to live with her anymore. Well, and children don't have the verbal narrative to express the things that we as adults are able to express and, and to have a objectivity and, and look at what's, what's best. So certainly you were not in the position as an 11-year-old or your siblings as well to be able to articulate to authority figures what, what your experience was. So it sounds like your dad definitely provided more consistency and predictability, at least in the beginning when, when he got custody of you all and you all moved in with him. I'm thinking from age 11 to 19 when he really cut you out of his life. What was going on in those years? What were shifts? What, looking back, do you notice now that indicates his mental health wasn't um, wasn't really healthy? Yeah. So, so in junior high, we lived in New Jersey at that time, and he worked as a disc jockey. And in the book, I call that chapter our golden years. And I do think, again, he was a perfectionist with everything, whether it was with sports highlights, timing of music intros, or even the way he ran the household. So food shopping, only time for that once a week. So he made a menu for the whole month wow. so that we planned everything. The, the way even that he taught me to clean the house, to dust the hardwood floor, tilt your head from the side to see the light shining through if there's any dust on it. He was a perfectionist with everything. I do think now I can look back and even I see entries in my diary at that time, like dad's in a bad mood because I shredded the cheese to put on top of the lasagna too thickly. Now, are you kidding me? Mm-hmm. This is a junior high kid making lasagna. I think now it's, you're lucky if you get anything and it's just <laughs> yeah. frozen. But but he wanted it, you know, shredded very thinly, and I did it too thickly. So I could see things that were not appropriate, but I still think he really, really tried. And and this is one reason why I could keep my hope alive for so long, because I do think people can lose their way in life. And I think if you're in the public eye, it's easier to lose your way or harder to stay grounded. And I do think he lost a little bit of the core of his soul, let's say. So I do think he was, he tried to be a really good father then. And I did, after he died, I reached out to our babysitter at that time and just said, you know, am I just idolizing and remembering that time through rose-colored glasses? And she said, oh, no, he really did try. He really did try. She thought he was harder on my brother than on me in those years. But, um, yeah, those were the golden years. You know, there's another theme I'm sensing developing in our conversation, and it has to do with the erosion of your self-esteem in moments like where you're grading cheese for dinner in junior high school and you're reprimanded, you uh, made to feel less than unworthy because it's not the right thing.
thickness of cheese. And just I notice in reading your book from such an early age, just never feeling good enough, a sense of self-worth and value that's so important to then go on in life with partner selection, as I know you talk in your book and, and relationship partner selection, and just it really underlies everything. And you're a mother now of two children, and and I'm certain that you are a really different parent than your dad. How did you address those themes in, in having your own kids? And I know I'm jumping around a bit, but it, it just popped in my head as you were talking about the cheese. Yeah. Yeah. No. So self-esteem and low self-esteem, I think, is a challenge for any person that has a perfectionist as a parent. And I did learn after my father died that he had narcissistic personality disorder. So I think it also is a problem for children with parents who are classic narcissists. Like I'm using that word very specifically, not to mean just self-centered. And I, I would love to know what was I like before. And I remember a picture. We still have this picture shortly after my sister was born. So I'm five years old. And my father told me to get out of the picture. He just wanted it of my sister, the baby, and our mother at that time. And I was so stubborn. I wouldn't get out of the picture. I kept my hand on the baby stroller and just kind of leaned to the side. And I think, wow, does that mean I had a sense of self before or was it really um, never really there? But it is something I, I've battled with. And I think this is where people with low self-esteem, it's how do you recover it? And sometimes yeah. we look for others or for accomplishments. So this is where I am my father's daughter. To me, filling the hole with the constant criticism from him, I would do it by being the perfect child at home, being the straight A student, trying to please my teachers. And then later in life, it's, you know, get, get the right boyfriend, be overachieving in work. And I, I think that solves things externally but it's not how you feel in your gut. And so to me, it's lifelong work to focus on, do I really feel good inside, no matter who I'm with, and no matter what I accomplish. And that's hard. <laughs> so does that answer the first part on self-esteem? And then I'll talk about parenting. Well, yes. And for our listeners as well, anyone listening that, and I think a lot of women just in our culture, we're juggling so many wearing different hats, have various responsibilities. And I think it's a common experience for us to feel like we're not enough. And when that's, that's has the additional overlay of an abandonment wound, like in your situation growing up, the work is really about grounding oneself and in, in one's value and worth and lovability without the external pursuits of success of of you know awards or or being good being acknowledged it's really the inner acknowledgement of oneself just for being alive that we are value valuable and worthy just because we are alive without doing anything and that unconditional love i think is a message that is important to highlight in your book and in your life story what would you say about that yeah, so absolutely. It is the inner strength and I, and the inner belief in yourself. And I think once, once you've lost it, it's very hard to get it back. 
And I think, unfortunately, we usually get it back in dysfunctional ways or we can't get it back. And so you numb yourself, whether it's alcohol, drugs or overworking. Um, So I do think it's a lifelong thing to work at. My hope in sharing my story is that other people with low self-esteem realize it's okay if you're not getting what you need from your parents. You, you can still recover from that. And so with my own children, who are now both college age. Wow. Um, <laughs> yeah, I know. They blink. You blink and they're grown up. Wow. Uh, and I do, yeah, I never want them to feel as bad as I ever felt. So, and I don't have a good internal barometer. When am I demanding too much? And somebody who read the book wrote to me, he wrote a really nice, he sent me a nice email, wrote a nice review. And he said, you know, I feel like we we should stop pursuing perfection and just pursue excellence. Perfection is not attainable, not real. And both my kids are very demanding themselves, but for different things. My daughter, overachiever in school. And what she does, teaching kids how to swim, and she does these distance swims that I just think are crazy, like 10-mile open water swim. Wow. And and that's her. Yeah, I know. That's her pushing herself, though, not me. I'm like, you know, chill, be nicer to yourself. Um, so I never want my children to have that low self-esteem. But you know what? Society also, not only your parents that you get this from, Social media with teenagers, we know, puts huge, huge pressure under them like ne- never before. Uh, so to me, it's, it's about being positive, having the positive outweigh the negative voices in your life and as a parent. And I'm certain with your daughter, Megan, and your son, Sam, that you have the capacity to feel empathy and to apologize and to take responsibility for yourself and your life and when you make a mistake to own that and and go to your kids and let them know that you're able to model empathy which is something that your dad wasn't able to do which is uh, some of the core characteristics of what truly is narcissistic personality disorder that disorder is thrown around a lot nowadays on social media and different publications and and the true diagnosis of an individual with narcissistic personality disorder it's it's an empathy deficient disorder it's where an individual cannot put themselves in your shoes it's really the world is seen through they're very sensitive about themselves and their own lives and their own feelings to to a degree of hypersensitivity that a narcissistic person could feel offended at the slightest change in 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 your voice and your behaviors and your actions yet they're not able to extend that to you and it's very confusing for a child growing up with a non-empathetic parent you start to as you did Cindy think it's your fault that if you just did this better or different it's going to work out next time and you're going to receive that love and that might work some of the time but it doesn't work as the healing balm because the narcissist cannot really give consistent love or unconditional love. Right. Yeah. And so I do uh, empathy. Yes. Uh, people say I'm, I have a strong sense of intuition 
but also empathy. Sometimes I think I feel other people's pain, whether it's my children, my husband's, my coworkers, uh, more than I wish I did. But um, yes, I, I think I, I understand <laughs> that narcissists don't do that, but they also talk a good game, you know, because they'll talk about you hurt my feelings or you did this, you did that, or you embarrassed me. And you think, oh, yeah, it's all my fault. Um, and for my own children, yeah, they will. It, it, it would be funny. <laughs> my daughter's read, read the book. My son has read the back cover. But um, I do admit my mistakes, definitely. We all say we're sorry when any one of us makes a mistake. And my father used to. In junior high, he used to say, I'm sorry, when he felt like he wasn't doing something right or when he hurt our feelings but that really went away um i i think there were a couple things couple reasons why he changed almost like a, a perfect storm or trifecta of things remarrying getting a more famous job getting fired from his dischocky job and his own father dying and i think all those things at once I think changed him or made the narcissism worse. When you talk about in your book that, that your father never healed from his own childhood wounds, there was a lot of trauma and unpredictability and chaos in his life and his upbringing with his father having four wives and being estranged from one of his own children. So your dad definitely grew up with, I think, a lack of empathy, which Sometimes children that grow up with a lack of empathy become hypersensitive and empaths. Like I think for you, being really empathic, really intuitive, really tuned in. And then other times people become non-empathetic and cut off. So I know you talk about that also in your book, a bit about your, your dad's upbringing and how it affected him from what you could gather and learn. From yeah, others. for sure. I mean, and this is where... I, again, I think I can forgive him and will always love him because I understand where he came from. And I don't give him a pass. I don't say he did the best he could because he didn't. He, we could have gone to family counseling. We could have done a lot of things, but he chose not to. And I think it was too painful for him to ever look back and say, why the heck is he the way he is? And I once brought up his older sister, who had been disowned for getting pregnant. Now, okay, if you want to say maybe in, in the 1950s, was that the norm in a Catholic German family in the Midwest? Maybe. But my father couldn't even talk about her, whereas his father, my pop, reconciled with that daughter shortly before he died. So there is a lot of, dis I, I mean, I get bits and pieces from my aunts and uncles, um, most of whom have now passed away, uh, about the lashings. I've heard the word lashings and beatings mm -hmm. in their house. So how much was it pop or how much was it my, gr my paternal grandmother? I, I cannot say for sure but I don't think it was a very positive, functional upbringing. No. Cindy, we're going to go to a quick word from my sponsors and bring you back on in a minute, if that's okay with you. 
Yep, got it. Wonderful. Indeed, listening is the new reading. With Audible, you can listen to an unlimited amount of books at home, in your car, at the gym, anywhere on the go. With over 180,000 audiobooks to choose from, for you, the listener of all things therapy, Audible is offering you a free audiobook download and a month-long subscription for you to try them out. Visit audibletrial.com forward slash all things therapy now and enjoy. Do you want to help yourself and friends find a purpose in life? Then you are in the right place and be a part of the crowdfunding campaign of patreon.com forward slash all things therapy with Lisa Tahir as she initiates a one-on interaction with inspiring authors, healing experts, and spiritual directors. Join the League of Heroes of this generation by contributing your quota between a dollar up to a hundred dollars per month at patreon.com forward slash all things therapy. Let's make the world free of suicide, poverty, depression, and in all, make the world a better place for everyone. I'm with Cindy Michael, author of The Sportscaster, The Sportscaster's Daughter, her memoir. Cindy, as we were ending right right before the, the break, uh, the question that popped in my mind to ask you is, and thinking about how your father passed away, I think it was eight years ago. Is that correct? Yeah. Well, Christmas Eve, 2009. Okay. Nine. So nine, n- almost nine years ago this December. Right. Yeah. Eight and a half years. Yeah. Okay. At at what point did you feel inspired, moved? How did it happen within you to decide to write this memoir and put your private story out in the public? So probably for, for 20 years, I've been working on it and it would come out as short stories. Even in college, I, I wrote a story and my writing teacher said, what, and I fictionalized it because I didn't know the craft of memoir at that time. And my college professor said, why did you make the main character a disc jockey? I've never met a disc jockey that I ever liked. And I just <laughs> thought, well, because my father was one, come on. <laughs> so I had been trying to write this in bits and pieces, and I only had ever written short stories. And I, I actually wrote the first, I think I, I, I had read a couple of memoirs and thought, wow, you know, I, maybe that's the form to tell the story. So The Glass Castle, for example, I had read. That was partly inspiration. And then Joan Didion's Year of Magical Thinking, when her husband died, she said writing it made her mind stop spinning and I, I do, I needed a way to have my mind stop spinning, to gather my thoughts. And I actually wrote one of the first chapters of the memoir 10 months before my father died. And it, it was after I had gone back to my uh, childhood home in, in New Jersey, the last, in South Jersey, the last time my parents had lived together. And I saw this heart that my father had drawn drawn in the sidewalk in freshly poured cement. Mm. And it, it was like just such an epiphany moment. So I had written bits and pieces of chapters, but I was a working mother, a busy mom, both my kids in sports. And so I didn't get too much time to write. And then when he died so suddenly, 
so unexpectedly on Christmas Eve of all days, and I had no warning whatsoever. I really uh, almost lost myself. I didn't know that I could crawl back from that. So as part of the grieving process, I wrote every Friday. I just said, I have to do this. And then I started going back to writers' workshops, which I had not done for a long time. And I didn't know, would I be the only person to care about this story? And as I shared pieces in different writers' workshops, the feedback was positive. And so I continued on. What has been the feedback from your family about this book and you being public in interviews and such uh, on talking about family dynamics and the way that, that you grew up? Yes. So it's been very interesting. So let's talk about my immediate family and then the extended. So immediate family being my husband, my daughter, my son, we make decisions as a team. And I did say to them, look, if if the whole purpose of this was for me to write it, to heal, I'm done. Mm. If I'm supposed to write it and put it out there so that others can also heal Are we ready for the repercussions of this? Because I certainly don't want to hurt anyone. I don't want to hurt my mother. But I also don't need the angry, mean backlash from people like my stepmother, my sister, my brother. So there's a lot of fear about it. And and I'm not used to talking. I, I hadn't really spoken about these matters of the heart for a long, long time. So our family had a powwow, and they're like, put it out there. It's I do believe part of my calling in life is to write (laughs) and to help others through my writing. So um, none of us believe in taking the safest route, but it it sometimes is painful. It's sometimes hard to relive these things, for sure. But I think that's one of my larger purposes in life. So that's the immediate family. Are you ready for the extended family? Yes, very much. Absolutely. So extended family and and let's say close friends. Uh, Close friends were were scared. The people that knew my story were scared that I would be hurt and I wouldn't be able to handle the public backlash because this is the other thing people don't like. They don't like you messing with their idols. And uh, people that did idolize my father. And so um, I think there's fear about that. What, what hurts me more than anything is when somebody just glances at maybe the description and they don't read the positive chapters and they just say, your father was terrible. That hurts me. He, he was terrible at times and he was wonderful at times. So let's look at the full picture. Uh, uh, my my sister did post a, a mean review on Amazon, which I think is a very strange way of communicating with me about the book. But um, w- what can I say when you've been raised in that environment so long? I don't think uh, coping skills, communication skills are that great. And then feedback from people that knew my father or worked with him. So I I have pledged that I will never name names or anything, but it's really helped me heal. And I think 
they feel like I got it right. Uh, some good things that have come out of it. Uh, with somebody that was a fan of his in the industry, we were able to unearth an old recording, a tribute my father had made to Elvis Presley. And he was the first one to get the interview with Priscilla Presley when Elvis died. Wow. And I, and, and yeah. And so that was aired um, on the anniversary of Elvis's death. And that would have just remained in the archives. Uh, and then there was a blog about that and, and it was aired on reround radio. So to me, more good has come out of it, but it, it is a cost emotionally. What, what can I say? That's my life calling. <laughs> well, and, and your book, if listeners out there choose to read it, it's really about forgiveness, deep self-forgiveness, deep forgiveness of your father and just an exploration and exposing of family dynamics that every family has issues. Every family has problems and it's, it's, up to the individual families, how they handle those issues. And I think your message kind of shining through is really about empathy and forgiveness. What What are some of your hopes that your book is out and what what's some of your desire and what you want to leave even with our listeners about your work and just important to you in your life, Cindy, as, as your gift? Yes. So it is about forgiveness of Grudges, transgressions, um, harsh words, forgiving yourself, forgiving others. And I do think it's never too late to reconcile. And maybe my father, if he had more time, he would have reached out. Maybe not. But I was always open to that. And I do think uh, we can run out of time, at least in this life. And then you have to think about what is your faith? Do we, do we get more time afterwards? I don't know. But it's never too late. And I still believe that love is stronger than hate. But I also believe that you can damage people and destroy that love. And the natural response is to harden your heart. And I do, I did, there's, there's a chapter in the book called Dying, where I tried that for two years when I was in college. It didn't work. I didn't like the person I had become. And I think that is the response in our society. You either harden your heart or you, you numb yourself with medication or what have you. So I don't think that has to be the only answer. I think if you want to really forgive and to heal working on it, reflecting, confronting these things in little bits and chunks, not all at once, is a lifelong process. I'm not done healing, and I know I pass some garbage onto my kids, and we talk about it, and we work through it. Yes, I think your message of love is stronger than hate is definitely a truth, and that there is always an opportunity while we are here with each other to come to the table and have those important conversations. Your dad had mentioned you in an interview two years before he died. Is that accurate? He did. Yes. In Washingtonian magazine. Yes. Got my hopes up. Silly me. I don't think that's (laughs) silly. I think that's to be expected hearing yourself mentioned. So I think that I think anyone in your shoes, Cindy would have been hopeful and, and expectant of hearing something. Maybe. I don't know. Some people have said to me, why didn't I just 
you know, say, forget all of you. You're not nice people, and I don't need you in my life. And I think that could have been a natural response as well. But I, I can't forget who any of them, my father, my sister, my brother, who any of them once were or what their potential was. And so, and, and also I had Pop and his daughter, they reconciled before they died. So I have heard that my father did not expect to die. He, he had uh, lymphoma. He thought he could beat it. It was chronic, not the acute one. But then I wonder when you slow down, when you go from working 80 hours a week and always being in the public eye to almost nothing, is it too much time on your hands to think? And so, yeah, he had, he had this cancer and I think he ran out of time. Yes. You know, something I want to draw our listeners attention to also is I know often reading a book, you might not read it to the very last page. And in your book, something I really love that the last pages of your book are are what you call reading group questions. And I thought that was really brilliant because you actually, you know, raise the questions, the theme of family patterns and discussion questions that an ind- a reader can ask what you can ask yourself you can do it together in a group what inspired you to come up with some of these discussion questions to add to your book yes so <laughs> this is the funny thing lisa my neighborhood book club we're really lazy if we don't have a reading group discussion guide at the end the poor author we don't pick their book so it was a little bit things that um We debated, some of the questions came from things that we debated in writers' workshops, but then I thought, gosh, if I don't have reading group questions at the end, no book club will ever pick my book, and a few have. So I think it's good, even if you're not in a reading group, in in a book club, that it's useful for self-reflection as well. And I think a book like yours really promotes that self-reflection, especially as you share with us specific memories that then trigger memories within within your readers to reflect upon incidences with our own parents and how those things were handled or not handled and then in turn how that affected us. So I think it's a really, as I told you before we came on the air, just a unique way to work with personal growth and development and emotional healing through through your memoir. Yeah, so I do think self-reflection and making time for that, it's hard to do when we're distracted by so many things, whether it's work, social media, binge-watching movies, and what have you. But I think whether it's writing or quiet time, whether you're jogging, walking, what have you, um, and, and then traditional therapies as well. I think all of that, it's helped me figure out where I was at a particular time in my life, but then also have I progressed at all? (laughs) I I hope I've progressed at all, but sometimes I read those old journals and think, gosh, I still have hangups about this issue. Well, and I think that's, that's our journey through life is to, we, we, in my experience, we tend to struggle with work with a couple of core issues and, and I'm imagining experiencing the kind of abandonment that, that you went through. It, it would be around self-worth and value. And I think as long as we're applying a lot of self-forgiveness on a daily basis, a lot of unconditional love, that we can heal through 
to, to really transform those woundings into gifts as you have done in your memoir. Yes, thank you. So I try to, I, I think the other thing, and I know you talk a lot about spirituality and the other thing that I think has helped me in all of this is my faith. And I don't mean that necessarily in any kind of strict sense of doctrine, but I do have a strong faith. Uh, some people have said to me, well, how can I still have it when so much garbage has been thrown my way? And I'm like, yeah, but I've gotten through, I've gotten through those really difficult times. And sometimes I do think I shouldn't be alive or I shouldn't be so okay or normal. Somebody once said, you must, you must have had a ton of therapy because you're really normal. Like, no, I think <laughs> it's, it's my faith and, and working on it. So Beautiful. Cindy, I really appreciate you being with us today. Thank you for taking your time out to talk about your memoir, The Sportscaster's Daughter. Lisa, thank you so much for having me. You're welcome. I hope you have a great rest of your day. You too. Thank you. Bye-bye. That concludes my show today with author Cindy Michael of The Sportscaster's Daughter. Please join me next week for another episode as I bring you another guest. I hope everyone listening has a fantastic week. Bye-bye. You're listening to All Things Therapy with Lisa Tahir, only on LA Talk Radio. This Valentine's Day, Dunkin's got the perfect pairings to show your love. So get down on one knee with a dozen brownie batter donuts and a cocoa mocha signature latte. Or make them swoon with a strawberry dragon fruit Dunkin' refresher with a Cupid's Choice Donut. Are you ready for love? America runs on Dunkin'. Price and participation may vary. Limited time offer.